0: That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 133, The Soviet Union, Part 3, The First Five-Year Plan. This week, I would like to thank John, Michael, and James for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more about becoming a member over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Last episode covered the political and military developments in the Soviet Union during the 1920s, and this episode will shift focus primarily to economic decisions That would be made during the late 1920s and into the 1930s. This would be a critical period for the economy of the Soviet Union, and some of the most impactful decisions for the future war with Germany would be made during this period, which would allow for the later actions that would turn the Soviet Union into an economic powerhouse. Many of these actions would be encapsulated in the first five-year plan, which would begin in 1928, with two further five-year plans taking place before the start of the war. These five-year plans were primarily focused around massive economic investment to greatly increase the Soviet Union's industrial capacity. To do this, resources and manpower would be focused on a number of goals, which would quickly make the Soviet Union an industrial powerhouse. Or at least, that was the plan. As with any major economic plan, there would be challenges faced along the way, and some of the goals of the plan would simply be unattainable. It was also very expensive, and the resources had to come from somewhere and certain items had to be imported from abroad. This put additional strain on the Soviet economy, forcing a lower standard of living among its people, and having some truly devastating consequences for some groups within Soviet society, consequences that we will spend episodes 5 and 6 of this series discussing. But the first five-year plan did produce results, especially in the realm of military industry, which we will discuss in this episode, after first discussing the overall political situation during the last years of the 1920s, and the general organization of the first five-year plan. Before we dive into the economic discussions, there would be serious changes to the leadership of the Soviet Union in the final years of the 1920s. By 1928, the group of Soviet leaders that had worked together to push Trotsky, Zinoviev, and Kamenev out of their positions of leadership had settled into a new status quo. Stalin would remain in his position as General Secretary, and some of the other more powerful members of the Politburo would be Alexei Rykov, Chairman of the Council of People's Commissars, Nikolai Bukharin, Editor of Pravda, Mikhail Tomsky, Leader of the Soviet Trade Unions, Nikolai Uglanov, Moscow Party Secretary, and Mikhail Kalinin, Chairman of the Supreme Soviet. The general feeling among these and other leaders at the top of the party structure was that it was time for unity and after the fractious infighting of the previous years. The plan was to work together to evolve the new economic policy and to make other reforms. But Stalin still wanted to find a way to consolidate power around himself. He wanted to make himself the the new Lenin of the Soviet Union, the, the unquestioned leader of the party of the revolution of the Soviet Union. But during 1928, he would at least temporarily work with the others as a way of just abiding his time. It's very likely that if Stalin would have acted more openly immediately, he probably would have ran up against a wall of resistance from the others. There would instead be a series of events that would slowly begin to erode the power of some of the other members of the Politburo. In 1928, there was a major shift in power within the trade unions and within the Moscow party, which would see Tomsky and Uglanov lose some of their support. But the major shift would occur due to the actions of Bukharin. Bukharin would meet with Kamenev, that same Kamenev that had been politically defeated by Stalin and the others in the Politburo in July 1928, and during this meeting he would speak of the general unease and and disagreements within the Politburo. When Stalin was informed of this meeting, he went on the attack. He was able to claim that it was Bukharin that was trying to destroy the unity of the Politburo by working with those that had already been removed. A major part of Stalin's arguments during this time, when it came to trying to remove men like Bukharin and then Tomsky and Rykov from their positions of power, was the idea of a right deviation. This was the idea that as the revolution matured, there would be a tendency for those within the Communist Party to drift towards the right of the political spectrum, relative to where the Communist Party was at the time. This generally meant people wanting to bring in more social democratic principles and more capitalist ideas into the communist party's policies. In the last years of the 1920s, this meant that they were deviating to the right from what Stalin believed was the best path forward. I'm going to pull some quotes from a speech given by Stalin in April 1929 here. Quote, we say that in Europe the conditions are maturing for a new revolutionary upsurge, that this circumstance dictates to us new tasks along the line of intensifying the fight against the right deviation in the communist party's and of driving the right deviators out of the party, of intensifying the fight against conciliation, which screens the right deviation, of intensifying the fight against social democratic traditions in the communist parties, etc. etc. But Bukharin answers us that all of this is nonsense, that no such new tasks confront us. That is the whole fact of the matter is that the majority of the central committee wants to haul him, i.e. Bukharin, over the coals. The misfortune of Bukharin's group is that it does not see the new class changes and does not understand the new tasks of the party, and it is precisely because it does not understand them that it is compelled to drag in the wake of events and to yield to difficulties. I've already said that Bukharin does not see and does not understand the new tasks of the Comintern along the line of driving the rights out of the communist parties, of curbing conciliation and of purging the communist parties of social democratic traditions, tasks which are dictated by the maturing conditions of a new revolutionary upsurge." Quote. Stalin would then go on to argue against Bukharin's views on a few topics, including the idea that the kulaks, or rural property owners, would grow into socialism eventually, and would not need to either be destroyed or forced into socialism, which is what Stalin thought would need to happen. We will go into the details of that, uh, the Kulaks and how they were treated and what happened, in a later episode. But I think this is the key quote. quote now this strange theory of Bukharans is aspiring to become the banner of the right deviation in our party, the banner of opportunism. That is why we cannot now ignore this theory. That is why we must demolish it as a wrong and harmful theory, so as to help our party comrades to fight the right deviation. End quote. This is an important connection of political disagreements, not just meaning that the other person was wrong, but that the very existence of their thoughts and of their actions was a manifest threat to the Communist Party. This this would be very critical to later events. Near the very end of the speech, Stalin would close like this, The fight against the right deviation must not be regarded as a secondary task of our party. The fight against the right deviation is one of the most decisive tasks of the party. If we, in our own ranks, in our own party, in the political general staff of the proletariat, which is directing the movement and is leading the proletariat forward, if we in this general staff should allow the free existence and the free functioning of the right deviators, who are trying to demobilize the party, demoralize the working class, adapt our policy to the tastes of the Soviet bourgeoisie, and thus yield to the difficulties of our socialist construction. If we should allow all of this, what would it mean? Would it not mean that we are ready to put a brake on the revolution, disrupt our socialist construction, flee from difficulties, and surrender our positions to the capitalist elements? End quote. This would be the logic used over the course of 1929 and 1930 to remove many of the other leaders of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Bukharin, Tomsky, Uglanov, Rykov, would all be removed from their positions of power. They would not be arrested at this time. that They would not be killed. That would only come later. At the moment, in 1930... The reason that they were removed was because they had political disagreements with Stalin and he was able to convince others that those disagreements were not just simple disagreements between sort of socialist intellectuals, but instead were a manifest threat to the Communist Party, to the Soviet Union, and therefore their influence had to be diminished. And eventually, later in the 1930s, they would be arrested and many of them would be killed for the same reason. While the Politburo was having its disagreements about the best path forward, a plan was being developed for the first five-year plan. Generally how this worked was the State Planning Commission, which was part of the Council of People's Commissars, would do most of the central planning. This was, as you might expect, an incredibly complicated process, trying to plan out goals for all of the various pieces of the Soviet economy, along with trying to properly allocate resources of all kinds, including workers, to achieve those goals— It was also a task which could not just be a top-down set of directives, because the Central Committee did not always have all the information that it needed to make these decisions. So it would involve information moving up through various local, regional, and state committees about the current state of an area, the resources it had, the number of workers available, what tasks needed to be done, etc. There would also be suggestions or requests transmitted up the chain as well. Local party leaders, based on what they felt was best for their area, might advocate for or against certain directives that they might receive. This was important at all levels of the hierarchy, because resources were limited, and so if a particular area really wanted to do something, they had to make sure that those above them knew about it. Now, the general goals of the first five-year plan were based around industrialization targets, and they were spread across both resource collection and refinement, and also production targets. For example, the goal was to increase the extraction of oil to 45 million tons, to produce 17 million tons of cast iron, to build 170,000 tractors, and 200,000 automobiles. These were very lofty goals, which would require a massive increase in all of the goal categories when compared to the production figures in 1928. To try and make them more achievable, there were absolutely no limits on the amount of resources that could be spent on any given item. Anything that an industry needed, it could get if it had high enough priority. This included workers and food for those workers. The food part is actually where the challenges really come into play and which would result in the forced collectivization of the early 1930s, which will be a major focus of three upcoming episodes. The basis of the problem was that if the massive industrial targets were to be met, they had to be supported by some large increases in agricultural production, both to feed the workers, but also to export, because the Soviet Union needed to bring in or import items from abroad that simply could not be produced locally. But at least in the late 1920s, the agricultural sector of the Soviet economy was not as controlled as other sectors, which meant that the ability of the central plan to impact the production of agricultural goods was not as strong. Collectivization, or sort of bringing those farms together in collectives, was a way to change this. But again, we'll come back to this later because it's a very large topic. But in general, the important thing to know was that the first five-year plan was a large economic plan to greatly increase the production of a wide range of industrial goods, both raw material and finished products, with the requirement of also increasing agricultural production to support those industrial goals. Included in the five-year plan was a massive increase in the general amount of construction that was happening all over the Soviet Union, from factories and workplaces to housing. In a good example of how these types of activities would influence the rest of society, this construction boom resulted in the creation of the All-Union Academy of Architecture of the Soviet Union, which would be founded in 1933. This would allow for the training of more architects to oversee construction and design, and it was hoped that it would also allow for a purer form of communist architectural expression, because everything had to be tied back to the party and to the revolution the Academy would be one example of a smaller project that would spin out of these massive goals of the five-year plan. There were also some really large projects that were seen as some of the cornerstones of the plan. One of these would be the Dnobstroy hydroelectric power generation project this project was designed to provide power to large areas of ukraine um, and then change the structure of the dnieper river to make it more navigable and also to provide some irrigation possibilities to areas of the steppe that, that previously sort of didn't have access to water the dam and hydroelectric station that was associated with it would demand more and more workers throughout the construction which began in 1927 The number of workers would increase from the original plan of a few thousand to over 36,000 by the time it was completed in 1932. This massive increase in the number of workers allocated to some projects, like the dam and the hydroelectric plant, meant that, you know, they had to come from somewhere. You know, there, there was a balancing act that had to happen. The project that those workers, those, you know, 30,000 workers was taken off of, then maybe didn't have enough to complete its own objectives, so that manpower had to be taken from somewhere else, but it would try to find workers working on a less important project. Eventually, some area of the labor force would be the lasted line, though, and they would just have to make do as certain areas continued to demand more and more manpower. This was coupled with continuous increases in the overall goals of the five-year plan, which would occur throughout the five-year period after 1927. Many of these increases were kind of their real-life equivalent of, of like a movie scene where somebody says they can do something in two weeks and their boss says, have it done in one. Well, imagine that playing out over many levels of administration. Sort of, you know, I say two weeks, you say one, and then their boss says five days and their boss says four days. That was kind of happening at a national level, only less around um, sort of timing and more around just raw goals of how many or how much could be produced. This would be one of the causes of some of the wastefulness during the first five-year plan. There would be massive increases in many areas of the Soviet economy during this period. The five-year plan was not a failure, other than when it's evaluated against its goals. Almost every possible measure of industrial production rose sharply during the first five-year plan. But it ran into the same challenge that any plan on a similar scale in time frame encounters. Parts of the plan had to be built around supporting other parts of the plan. You had to build a factory before you could build the automobiles. And if one of those pieces did not meet their goals or were deprioritized and maybe lost some workers to a hydroelectric plant, then maybe the tools that were to be used in that factory were not built when the factory was built. So it just had to sit there idle. But in many ways, this did not matter, because the goal was never to be perfectly efficient with effort or resources. The goal was to, as quickly as possible, make large increases to the Soviet economy. To make that increase a reality, the overall standard of living of people would be sacrificed, and there would be further consequences for those who lived in the countryside. But, again, there were huge increases to the Soviet economy. And it was felt by, by the leaders of the Soviet Union and many leaders of the party that whatever sacrifices were called upon to make those increases were important and were worth it. And that's kind of all that mattered. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? Along with simply wanting to increase the industrial and economic power of the Soviet Union, a major driver of the plans and actions during the first five-year plan was the Soviet military. This comes back to the idea that other nations were, you know, always right around the corner and waiting to attack (laughs) during this period. At the 15th Party Congress in December 1927, Voroshilov would make it clear that he hoped that the upcoming five-year plan would be built around the possibility that there could be a war in the near future. This could both be a smaller war with, say, a nation like Poland, with there being some concerns about actions being taken in that nation by Marshal Pilsudski. Along with this, there was also the nebulous massive war with all of the communist powers that always uh, theoretically existed as kind of an existential threat to the Soviet Union, even if that was not the most realistic possibility. To find a middle ground between these two threats, most of the military planning around the first five-year plan was built around a war with Poland and Romania, with the economic and political support of France, but not an open conflict with France that would have been something very different. This was not a completely unrealistic scenario in terms of military planning, but given the state of the Red Army in 1927, the goals of the five-year plan were very important to the overall future of the Red Army. Overall, the military leaders would push for action along three categories, the general expansion of industrial capacity, a push for self-sufficiency in that capacity, and the movement of critical resources away from the western borders. We have discussed the industrial capacity a bit already in this episode, but I will just mention that one of the major shortcomings, at least when it came to the goals of the Soviet military, was that there was not enough gunpowder and ammunition that could be produced. The production of these two items was always a challenge, because they are largely what I would call dead-end production, especially ammunition. If you make an ammunition factory, it can produce ammunition. But if you do that, then that factory does not really contribute to other things within the overall economic plan, and it would consume resources that could be used for more general-purpose production. That did not prevent military leaders from advocating for increases in production, though, claiming in 1929 that there was only capacity to create around 10 million rifle rounds per year when they needed 30 million. Along with just straight-up production increases, there were concerns about the vulnerability of Soviet industry, which was based near the western border. It was felt that all of the serious threats of invasion would begin in Europe, and so there was a military concern that they wanted to relocate all of the industrial resources away from places like Belorussia or Crimea to areas further east and deeper into the interior, sort of where it could be better defended. First of all, this was a challenge because it would be ruinously expensive in terms of resources and manpower, because the infrastructure to have some of these factories in other areas just didn't exist. Secondly, there was a powerful inertia to keeping the industrial production in these areas. The skilled workers lived there, and probably wanted to continue living there. Local leaders advocated for their areas to continue to receive resources to expand local capabilities, because of course they would. That's why they're local leaders. And there was far less risk, generally, in expanding existing production in an area, rather than sort of greenfield construction a thousand miles away. But even with all of these challenges, in 1928, it would become official policy to start moving some types of industry out of the border regions. No new military factories would be built in threatened areas. Large expansion projects for heavy industry would also not take place in those areas. This was seen as an important change in policy to safeguard future production. But most of this early shift in production would still be in areas that the Germans would capture in 1941, so it didn't actually end up mattering that much. One of the major benefits for the Soviet military of the first five-year plan was that it allowed military planners to start seriously thinking and planning for a very different type of war. If the goals were met, and even if they were approached, then the Red Army could start planning for a kind of offensive mobile war that many like Tukhachevsky believed was the future. A lot of this came down to tanks and aircraft, which before 1927, the Soviet Union did not have the ability to produce in large quantities uh, sort of within the Soviet Union. This would change, though, and so it allowed for planning to occur for what a truly mobile military might look like, and allowed for the idea of deep battle to be discussed. Tukhachevsky would push for this idea and others as a way of pushing military doctrine or Soviet military doctrine into the future. He would say, quote, It would be a mistake, however, to think that the reconstruction of the army would merely make it easier to accomplish the old types of operational and tactical actions. The new relative weight of aviation and tanks will allow absolutely new ways to engage in general battle, End quote. He was absolutely correct in this, as the Second World War would show. Deep Battle was Tukhachevsky's theory on how the more static fronts of the First World War could be avoided by taking a large army with large armor forces and strong air support and attacking along a front of almost 500 kilometers, rupturing the entire front and pushing to a depth of at least 100 kilometers to prevent the enemy from recovering. This was a lofty plan, but also proved to be very hard to even make detailed planning for, or to prove viable in war games, with a huge amount of effort throughout the 1930s spent trying to make the idea of Deep Battle into something like reality. But Deep Battle only had the faintest hope and a dream of becoming a reality, thanks to the strides made in military production during the first five-year plan. The overall goals for production of tanks in 1932 was not even close to being met. The goal for T-26 production was something absurd like 10,000 tanks. When under 1,000 were produced, this was a major miss. But for comparison, the British would produce just 1,100 tanks between the years of 1930 and 1939. The Soviets would do that in a year, when you combine T-26 and BT tank production in 1932 and they were going to produce many many more in the years that followed. Even though the goal was missed, and massively missed, just having a thousand light tanks plus many more tankettes and other vehicles would allow for the creation of the first mechanized units and for testing and training to occur with these units. This was a critical step in the development and refinement of armor theory and would set up the Red Army to be the world leader in armored units and armored capabilities throughout the 1930s. This was all possible because of the industrial advances of the first five-year plan. Next episode will focus on the agricultural aspects of the first five-year plan, primarily collectivization. And in the agricultural areas, the successes of the first five-year plan would be almost non-existent.